0: The episode show notes are at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this and all the other episodes. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my sword person's care package. This includes four eBooks and access to several of my online courses. My newsletter goes out every week with updates about the podcast, my works in progress, and all sorts of cool sword stuff. You can unsubscribe at any time and there's never any spam. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to thank the people who make it possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast, and without them I'd have quit long ago. Join us at patreon.com forward slash theswordguy for behind-the-scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash theswordguy. I'd also like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. Now, without further ado, on with the interview. I'm here today with Luis Preto. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty much, yes. Ah, oh, fantastic. Who is a yoga to power instructor and author of multiple books, including a tutorial on multiple opponent combat with one-handed weapons. He also has two master's degrees, because apparently one isn't enough, one in teaching sports and the other in kinesiology. Yeah. We'll get into all of that sort of stuff in the interview. So, without further ado, Luis, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me. Yeah.
0: Um, whereabouts in the world are you?
1: Right now I'm living in, in Portugal, Lisbon one of the world's capitals in terms of great beaches, awesome food, and just having an overall amazing time.
0: <laughs> so, so you're quite fond of Lisbon then?
1: Yeah, yeah quite a bit. I, I grew up here and yeah, so home is where the heart is. And so after spending <laughs> close to eight years abroad, yeah, I returned home.
0: Fantastic. Um, so let's just start with, um, the question of what is Yoga de Pau? And mm-hmm. we have had Jessica Gomez on the show in episode 38, and she talked about it a little bit, mm-hmm. um, but I'm guessing that the average listener may not remember that far back. So what is Yoga de Pau?
1: Yeah, I would say that Jogo de Pau uh, is known internationally as being the Portuguese uh, stick-fighting, staff-fencing combat system. Uh, okay. Personally... I have a slightly broader interpretation of this, because if you look around, uh, in Spain, in the Canary Islands, they have their own martial system with the same name, uh, but in Spanish, Juego del Paulo. And in France, uh, there is also a martial system, a combat system with the same name, but in in French, Jeu du Baton. And the thing is that the, the, uh, the Spanish system, um, being from from the Canary Islands, it's completely different. They have three different staffs of three different lengths and weights, and so it's very it's completely different from a technical standpoint, from a tactical standpoint, from Jog Dupont. But if you look to the if you look at the French Jeu du Baton, um, they didn't manage to preserve. The outnumbered combat version assuming that they once had one but within the dueling ver- version that they managed to preserve it's exactly like Jogo du Pau all the techniques all the strikes all the parries all the footwork are exactly the same as the ones we perform in Jogo du Pau and so I have a strong belief just a personal belief that Zhou du Pau is actually a cultural heritage of what was once a Central European fencing system specialized, uh, centred around the staff.
0: Okay. A couple of questions leap to mind. The first Mm -hmm. is, why do you think the French lost the multiple opponents version? Uh... Or is it possible that the Portuguese developed the multiple opponents version because they had a specific need for it, and they just never developed anywhere else.
1: Yeah, obviously that's, uh, that's one hypothesis, but my understanding, my, my, my perspective on martial arts, is that at least when they are initially developed, they are fueled by people's need for self-defense and you look at the russian martial arts system and also some others like aikido you've got and even arts like karate and judo they all have katas centered around multiple opponents and so i have a strong belief that those focused or fueled by the need to develop a self-defense skill invariably uh, are puzzled by and are puzzled by the need to develop a skill that translates into effectively fighting against multiple opponents. And that's and I know and I've been told and I believe it is true that that's the origin of jiu jitsu. And by looking at jiu Pau in such a way, in a way that uh, you think that the origin of jiu jitsu uh, is that of multiple opponent fighting. By looking at jiu jitsu like that, you can very easily make sense of the whole system from a technical and from a tactical standpoint. And so, under this perspective that martial arts get fueled by the need for self-defense, thus multiple, which include multiple opponent combat. Uh, and then also adding, adding to this uh, the knowledge that you've got historical manuscripts like German, some German ones Uh, that depict techniques and tactics to fight multiple opponents. And so that gives one the information that it wasn't just in Portugal that people focused on on multiple opponent combat. The the Germans did so, and Germans being neighbors of France, my guess is that obviously that the French at some point also, also focused their martial training around multiple opponent combat. Uh, And so under these assumptions that the French once also had the multiple opponent combat version, then the hypothesis that I come up with is that things probably got lost as a result of society going from rural-centered societies to urban-centered societies. Because the same thing happened in Portugal. For example, my, my main instructor, Nuno Russo, he was also raised in Lisbon, and that's where he began his practice of Jiu Jitsu. And <clears throat> sorry, and his practice of Jiu Jitsu in Lisbon centered was exclusively based on dueling on one-on-one combat, uh, because this Lisbon being um, an urban s- city, uh, Portugal's capital. People got together to practice Jog jitsu as a leisure activity. And within this leisure uh, context, uh, people began focusing exclusively on dueling. And so in Lisbon, outnumbered combat had already been lost. No one knew how to fight multiple opponents in, in Lisbon. And then one day he decided to ask his instructor um, whether one could use Jog jitsu uh, to spar, to, to fight against multiple opponents. And his instructor who was originally from the north of portugal which at the time was super, uh, very much still uh, uh, rural based and thus had kept that tradition his instructor who was originally from the north told him yeah there is a, there is such a version of joug dupau uh, i did learn a few things when i was a youngster but i haven't practiced them in a long long time so i'm going to teach you uh, the, the the little things that I still recall, but then I'm going to refer you to other instructors uh, situated, located in the northern part of Portugal, for you to go there and learn from them, learn from the source, learn from the people who have managed to preserve that style of combat to this day. And to his credit, that's what he did. And he managed to then put together a a training system, a method that included both outnumbered and dueling. Uh, but, so, but then now coming full circle and answering your question. Uh, in Portugal, it, what happened was the, the urban versus rural uh, paradigm uh, brought about this, uh, these different focuses, the focus on outnumbered combat in rural environments and the focus on dueling in urban environments. To the extreme that in Lisbon, the, in, in an urban environment, people also lost the outnumbered combat version, and so my my the, the hypothesis I would invest more energy on, or at least the first one I would look I would look to to test and to investigate was whether in France the same thing happened.
0: Okay, um, a <clears throat> couple of thoughts. Yeah. Firstly. Um, the stick has never been a sort of formal dueling weapon amongst the dueling classes, so it would make sense to me if it's designed for okay, you're you're walking from one village to another, and a bunch of guys jump you and try and take your money, mm-hmm. and so you use your walking stick to you know or your long walking staff to beat the crap out of them. Mm-hmm. That so it's, it strikes me as as likely that it would have been um, developed for that kind of defense rather than one-on-one. Yeah, because yeah, sure. in actual self-defense situations, you don't want to duel. You just want to hit people very hard and then move on. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. And we do have stories from England yeah. um, about people with quarter quarterstaffs fighting multiple opponents.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so it would make sense to me that it's primarily originally a, um, it is not operating with the assumption that you just have one opponent. Mm -hmm. Um, but my other thing is, okay. When you're training a dueling art, Mm -hmm. it's pretty straightforward to set up scenarios in which you can practice. Right. There's no real challenge there. Um, with multiple opponents, mm-hmm. there is the problem of... Well, what you're supposed to do is hit very, very hard and then move on, right? You're not supposed to interact with the individuals. You just you, you belt them as hard as you can and then move on. Because if you get stuck on one person, their friend is going to come behind you and conk you on the head. Mm-hmm. So how do you set up the training for multiple opponents?
1: Funny enough, it's actually... Easier and even less complex than in dueling, because just okay. like you, so like you rightfully said, like uh, if one is dealing with a self-defense situation, but that doesn't matter. That's uh, regardless of whether you're fighting against multiple opponents or just one. Like in a real-life self-defense situation, a real-life self-defense si- situation always involves the risk of serious injury or death, and so in order to reduce that risk of injury or death to zero the only thing that reduces the risk to zero is not fighting at all and so your first premise in a self-defense situation is to see, is to try to avoid the, the conflict at all costs and basically like eventually run to run away but now let's assume that the opponent or the several opponents that you are facing are blocking your access to the the only path that you have available to, uh, in order to run away then you have to do something in order to try to get to that to that path for for you to run away for you to run away from the opponents uh, but you have to get to that that exit route uh, without getting hit without uh, without getting injured and so therefore then in an outnumbered uh, case in, in fighting against multiple opponents what you are trying to do is to Simpl- simply keep the opponents at the distance because like assuming that you're not dealing with projectiles assuming that people do not have guns then if i'm out of your reach you cannot hit me and so and then what happens is that for example let's assume that i stay put on the same spot and i don't move if i don't move and if i'm fighting if i'm facing two opponents Both are able to approach simultaneously. Both are able to strike at me simultaneously. But then I only have one weapon. At best, I'm I'm able to protect myself from one strike and not from the second. And so I, I, I protect myself from one strike and I get hit by the other. And so for me to be able to protect myself from two opponents engaging me at the same time, I need to use my weapon to protect myself from one opponent And distance to protect myself from the other opponent and so by approaching you I am able to protect use my weapon to to protect myself from you but then if I have another guy uh, on my back at my back uh, by approaching you I'm able to distance myself from the guy standing at my back and so I'm able to protect myself by stepping out of his striking reach Uh, and as I approached you I can approach you in one of two ways Either you are attacking me and I have to approach you by pairing or I am am able to preempt your strike with a strike of my own. And so I am able to push you away and put you in a defensive position. And then I simply repeat this over and over again. After pushing you away and stepping out of the other opponent's reach i i switch and i strike towards the other opponent in order to push him away while stepping away from your striking reach and i continuously do this and then if i have a, if i have three four five uh, six opponents i i do this switching in order to move constantly in different directions uh, but the principle is always the same uh, I, I look to push away the opponents i am i am a, a preemptively striking towards, uh, while simultaneously I am stepping out of the remaining opponent's striking reach. And as they feel that I did that successfully, as they feel that the, they don't have me within their striking reach and they look to re-approach, I preempt, I switch I switch directions again, and I preemptively attack them and force them to step back or hit them in case they try to parry on the same spot. Uh, and so, and then basically... Uh, the principles. The principle is very simple, it's ju- just this. And then the reason why I said that it's actually simpler uh, to put together training scenarios for outnumbered combat than for dueling is because then basically we have only three scenarios. If I'm facing two opponents who are looking to surround me, then the two, the, the two opponents end up being in a line. And so I need to, I need to do, do this while moving in a line. If I'm facing three or four opponents... Those three or four opponents who are looking to surround me will put together, will form either a triangle or a square. And in, and in those cases, I move around from one side of the triangle to, a, to another or from one side of the square to the other. And ultimately, if I'm surrounded by five or more opponents, then I do the same thing while going around in a circle. While And although I'm by default going around in a circle, I have also the additional degree of freedom of, of suddenly moving in a different direction. And it's this, um, and it's this. And basically, outnumbered combat relies on two fundamental principles. The first is that you are, f- for starters, you are aware of your environment and you're able to realize that you are about to be approached by multiple opponents. And you have the cold enough enough cold blood to realize that you need to, to, be, to be offensive and so you're able to preempt your opponent's strikes. And from the moment you preempt your opponent's strikes and you continuously um, do that and you continuously uh, limit their role to a reactive role, then you add on top of this, uh, you add on top of this, the, the cherry on top of the cake, which is being able to constantly pre uh, strike towards your, your opponent's uh, while randomly moving towards different opponents, and so not being able to be anticipated, and so and it's this aggressiveness of being able to preempt your preempt your your opponent's uh, uh, strikes, and doing so while constantly moving in different directions and without a specific pattern that makes you predictable, that that allows you to have the active role and constantly keep your opponents in a reactive role. And then you simply do this, either in a line or in a triangle or, or, or square or through the, the, the middle circle uh, game. And so then basically, you basically using these principles. Then you only have like th- three uh, main scenarios. Um, okay. And, and okay. so it um, actually ends up being simpler.
0: Sure. Okay. But you're swinging a, quite a big stick at yeah. people's heads, mm-hmm. okay? And when you're working with, against multiple opponents, yeah. um, you, you have to be moving quickly. Yes. Yes? Yes. Okay, so how do you make that a safe training environment for the students? Um,
1: it, it's, quite, it's very simple, it's like this, so basically, Uh, when fencing you need to protect uh, you can systematize uh, the body parts that you need to protect into Mm -hmm. into three into three groups the head the hands and the legs and the head is actually the most the the easiest thing to protect Uh, the toughest thing to protect are the hands and especially in stick fighting and so the thing is that now making a very short detour even in stick fighting and for those scenarios that you mentioned of a guy walking around in the woods and then suddenly being confronted with burglars or, or even with guys from the next the next door village who don't want this guy to go there and date uh, and flirt with the girls from there and all these things. And so within yes. that scenario that you mentioned of a guy be, uh, walking around in the woods and being suddenly confronted with multiple opponents, people even went to the extreme of adding blades to the tip of the uh, staff so as to make the staff even more dangerous. And so the staff can actually, and traditionally, there were some instances in which the staff was actually a bladed weapon. And so in that Mm. regard, it gets closer to being to, to, to the sword right and to be uh, regarded and to be, yeah it's to, a spear wo- or a glaive yeah, or something yeah. like that but used we using swinging strikes and swinging strikes that suddenly mm-hmm. have the extra degree of freedom of being able to cut the opponent but the other physical trait that distinguishes the staff from swords is that in the staff we didn't adopt any sort of handguard in order to protect the hands and therefore, what happens is that obviously that uh, swordfencers are correct in the, when they state that the uh, that parries that you perform closer to the hands closer to, closer to the handguard are stronger biomechanically, and they are. And sword fences are wise to make use of that degree of freedom. But the thing that with a staff and in the absence of a hand guard, you don't want to, par- to parry so close to the hands that every once in a while you actually end up parrying with the hands them, uh, themselves.
0: And so. Yeah. And, st- and this, this, bit, hang on. This, this business of parrying close to the guard, that's later, right? Medieval sword sources all agree you parry with the middle of the sword. Because if okay, you try yeah. parrying close to the hat, if you try parrying close to the hilt, if you don't have an enclosed hilt, you are going to put your f- fingers in the way of the weapon, as I experienced myself more than once. Um, but the sources themselves, this business of parrying close to the hand, it only appears once the hand is protected by rings and knuckle bows and that sort of thing. So, okay, so yeah, that's the that's medieval good. sword sources would agree with you there.
1: Yeah, yeah. and that's... Uh, that's in line with the experience that they also had in Vancouver over there. I trained swordfencers for a year, and I also and I also constantly advised them and had them train to parry with a mid portion of the weapon because even with the, uh, even with the, um, with the cross guard, uh, their hands and their gloves obviously were yep. hit still quite frequently. Yeah, that, that's in line with my empirical experience. Okay, but how are you protecting better. the head?
0: Because the. the- yeah, because the stick—the stick is a kinetic weapon, right? it's yeah, yeah. It doesn't have, generally speaking, it doesn't have an edge. So you, you have oh, yeah. to be—the mechanics behind the blow, if they're actually going to work in a real situation, have to be mm-hmm. pretty robust. So how do you protect people's heads from these stick blows? Do you modify the stick? Do you modify the helmet? What do you do? No, so.
1: No, the, the thing is that, like, obviously that when you're doing it full out without any control, you need to implement the same strategies that sword fences implement. You you, you need to use body armor, gloves, helmet, and eventually, when possible, adapted weapons, pad, uh, staffs with foams, f- sp- staffs uh, with foams and uh, and made of a different material so as to be a little bit flexible. Uh, but the thing is that, but even in those situations, okay, like uh, just to be 100% safe, you, you can use a helmet. But it's not that dif- that important to use a helmet because the thing is that uh, be- before being thrown into that training scenario, you learn how to parry, which includes uh, learning the distance at which you need to be at from your opponent in order to parry successfully. And the thing is that because jean comes from Outnumbered Combat, our focus lies on maximizing mobility instead of looking to maximize reach. And so we do not lean forward like uh, some rapier fighters do in order to maximize reach. We stand in an upright uh, posture in order to to maximize mobility. Um, And this means that the instead the rapier fighter who leans forward actually places his head closest to his opponent. Close, uh, it's the closest body part mm. of his uh, closer to his opponent. But in our case, because we stand in an upright upright posture, it's our leg, our front leg, our front knee, leading knee, that is closest to our opponent, and our head is uh, our upper body is a little bit further behind. And then the thing is that. If you're looking to parry with the mid portion of your weapon, and if you have been trained to do so effectively upon doing so effectively and intercepting incoming strikes with the mid portion of your weapon, then that means that your your upper body, your head, is out even, of measure. Is, out, is out of measure. Um, but um, but even but uh, if you mess up, and you end up parrying too close to the incoming strike, too close to the opponent who's, who's striking at you. Then like you simply need to place your weapon either above your head in that oblique roof-like position or next to your body like with a side parry, which everyone performs... To have your head uh, uh, being effectively parried, but then the thing that in uh, the thing is that in that situation, you never get hit on the head because you only get you need to get you only need to get the parry in the right place.
0: Uh, when that sure. happens, okay.
1: what usually but, gets hit is your lead hand.
0: Sure, okay, but I bet you anything you like if you and I fenced mm. with yoga power, as I've never trained it. Mm-hmm. You would probably hit me in the head several times, so I am curious as to what kind of head protection you are using because you would sometimes you, your opponent isn't perfect and you are not perfect, and yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. head hits are going to occur. So, I yeah, am yeah. um, just because with we have a problem in historical martial arts where we don't really have adequate head protection for sword strikes. These mm-hmm. these modern fencing masks are not adequate for longswords, for instance. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of hoping that you have some perfect helmet solution that I can then take an idea and maybe adapt it into a better longsword head protection. So what are you using for your head, head protection?
1: I don't, yeah, I don't think I have a perfect helmet solution. Our, let's call it perfect head protection solution is one that merges wearing a helmet with compromising uh with assuming a compromise in terms of the weapon and so, and so instead of sparring full out with really hard inflexible uh, almost inflexible staffs uh, we compromise on the weapon and we have these staffs which have a skeleton that gets progressively thinner as you move towards the forward tip and so that makes these stuffs pretty flexible, and on top of that, they also have foam around them. And so you, ah, okay. we, and so but and so we look to get to that to 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 develop the, not the perfect helmet, but the perfect head protection strategy by merging the two, by merging a helmet with a slight compromise in terms of the weapon. And and okay. so and then that based on sense. this, that based on this, so what my. My main advice, one of my main advices uh, for people looking to train, in this case, Jogo do Pau, while looking to... Because like we, all, all of us who have fencing, fencing experience, we understand that by changing the physical traits of the weapon, um, you have the tendency to, try, to change... Uh, eventually a little uh, the technique uh, and eventually the tactics and you only need for to, to, to change the weapon in terms of weight if you make the, the the weapon lighter then you don't need to accelerate it as much with your body rotation and all that stuff uh, and so obviously that uh, the ideal thing in order to develop your skill uh, so as to in a way that you test drive it under competitive situ- uh, you test drive your skill using these competition-oriented uh, gear, uh, this type of competition-oriented gear. But you ha- but you also want to uh, ensure that your technique, your tactics, your skill are martially are being developed in a martially valid way according to the origin of the the. the, the of the of the art, then you need to constantly switch between your your practice between between the traditional wooden staffs and and the comp- competition oriented gear, and so um, yeah you, yeah yeah we do the but, same
0: with switching between sharp swords and blunt swords yeah of course yeah 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 makes sense yeah
1: um,
0: also this is reminding me a little bit are you familiar with the German um, jägerstock?
1: Um,
0: I'm familiar
1: with some things regarding German martial culture because I have one very close student who's German. And to my knowledge, to my knowledge, he's uh, he's a, the only person I've taught to this day who has really delved um, both into sword fencing and jogo do pau. But, uh, probably with uh, equal intensity and dedication. And he has shown me a, a few things, a few manuscripts cool. and a few references uh, pertaining German stuff. Yeah. Uh, what is that one about?
0: Okay. Because the Jägerstock, um, this comes from a book uh, by a chap-, chap called Pasha, writing in the 60s and 70s, if I recall correctly. And it is the, his Jägerstock stuff, He is explicitly taking it from a French source, which is now lost. Okay. But it is about 30-odd short cutter for this 10-foot-long stick, which has a spear point at each end, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And it is all multiple opponent stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it just just struck me um, that that might be something you might be interested in because it's from a French origin – 17th century and it is using effectively a stick okay it's got pointy ends on it but it's a stick yeah that is it's explicitly for multiple opponents yeah. um we have we have and, and it has like left. we have such forms in yeah, the
1: you go around spinning the mm-hmm. st- you 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 strike uh, forward with a spin and then you continue moving forward w- with constant spins in order to push away all those opponents and so like for example my instructor when he initially learned that uh, that kata and so and then you, you do this in, um, for the most part in a square you go forward in one direction and then you move to the other side of the square and then you end up for, for, for covering yeah. the whole square and my instructor when he initially learned this he, he was taught uh, to do this with three rotations. But then as you probably like, um, at least you made me recall, uh, this... Uh, required such a huge amount of space that when he transitioned from training outdoors to training in the gym, in the gym he didn't have enough yeah. space to do the three uh, to, do, to do the three to perform the three swing uh, three rotations, and so he reduced it to two in order to fit his, his training environment, which was still a huge, <laughs> huge, which was still a huge a huge gym. I, I can assure you that. Uh, but yeah. yeah, but but yeah, but uh, conceptually. Uh, the principle was that was that uh, was that of striking forward and constantly rotate uh, spin and continue striking forward. Yeah, because um, the jägerstock generally right goes.
0: <clears throat> yeah, the jägerstock. Most of the cat goes some variation on forward, back, left, right, or forward, back, forward, back, forward, back, forward, back. As you turn ninety degrees to the left each time. Yeah, yeah we and also understand. And sometimes it turns to yeah. the right or whatever. But yeah, it, it, I just think maybe it might be an interesting place for you to go looking for the lost French yoga of power against multiple opponents.
1: Yeah, for sure. That's a great reference to have. Thanks a lot.
0: Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, now, my next question. Um, okay. We actually met in person in 2006 in Dallas. Yes, we did in Louisville. Yeah, that's right. Um, A dry county. They actually had us staying in a dry county. It was extraordinary. (laughs) Anyway, so the what I remember from your class Mm -hmm. was you were quite explicit that you didn't see the point in teaching choreography Mm -hmm. or teaching in a choreographical way like do this because it looks like this. Mm -hmm. You were much more, okay, if you want your student to step forward – Given a reason to step forward, like a target in front of them. Mm -hmm. And um, honestly, I don't think I was quite ready to properly absorb that at the time.
1: (laughs) But these days,
0: that's entirely how I teach. (laughs) You'll be pleased to hear. Right. So, um, so it seems to me that at least at that time, you were creating environments in which the execution of the action that you want is a natural. Response from the student to the environment they find themselves in—is that a fair assessment?
1: Yeah, it's um, it's a fair assessment. Um, right now, I I look to explain those situ- that situation using the following two and uh, two thoughts. One is that if you think exclusively of being able to be coordinated in terms of timing. Let's think about uh, a tennis player or a baseball player um, uh, looking to hit uh, a ball, which is a, a project, a project, um, an object which is in motion. And um, so they need to coordinate their movement in terms of space and time, so as to st- to make contact with the weapon, with the, with the object, with the ball, uh, successfully. Uh, it wouldn't cross your mind to get or to expect any success to come out of out of a, a training methodology that would get you to train with imaginary balls, right? <laughs> yeah right so and so uh my understanding is that this this initial thought okay if if we can agree on this then we can now build on this okay so you you're not looking you you wouldn't expect success from training with imaginary balls you know to improve your timing so we agree on this okay now let's move forward then this my second thought is as follows you look you look up you open you open any any book on uh, motor control and development, the development of of skill, movement skill. And you invariably uh, see the following diagram. You see input leading to processing and processing leading to output. And when I see in martial arts, but also in other sporting activities, teachers, coaches presenting the trainee with the output with a specific uh, movement pattern for them to repeat and to assimilate basically through imitation trainees actually obviously they train they eventually learn to imitate and they learn to perform that motor pattern but they haven't been uh, their skill they haven't been taught to integrate that movement pattern within the preceding stages. They haven't become skilled in identifying the stimulus and they haven't become skilled in processing the stimulus that organically leads to that output. And then a practical example, for example, you throw me your car keys and if your car keys, if I catch the car keys over my, my, my shoulders, I catch the car keys like this. But if the car keys approach me... Sorry, for the the listeners, that's
0: hand up, point and facing forwards. So like snatching them with a downwards motion of the hand out of the air.
1: But if the car keys happen to reach me below my shoulder height, I end up switching...
0: I, I end up switching my hand, my hand yeah uh, where is it it's going okay. end up don't, Luis, don't, don't don't worry don't worry about the video no one can see the video except me. okay i end up <laughs>
1: so. switching i end up switching yeah. my hands in order yeah. for them to land on the palm of my hand and the thing is that That's
0: right. so you're you're uh, catching the palm up yeah
1: yeah and then and then we need we we benefit from realizing two things one is that we are never even aware of what we are performing You throw someone their car keys, your car keys, and then after they they successfully caught the car keys, you ask them, uh, "Oh, like, how did you catch them? How was, how did you manage your grip?" They go, "Like, uh, I don't know. I I simply caught them. I just caught it." Yeah. And then and then if you ask them to describe what they actually experienced, what they went through while they performed it, they will state something that makes total sense and it's pretty simple, which is like, dude. I didn't even think, think about my body. I looked at the car keys, and by simply following their trajectory, they lured me. They lured my body. My body has a brain of itself. I, they lured my body to adjust and to mold itself into the into the catching position that yeah. was warranted. And so, and so our our outputs are actually problem solving solutions uh, exactly. are, are intelligent ways in which our body molds itself uh, based based on two things based on having a goal having uh, a task that they that needs to be accomplished and then the specific traits of the environment that you need to deal with in order to be successful at that task that you want to be successful at.
0: (laughs) Here's here's the way I I phrase it, hang on. Here's here's the way I phrase it for my students when I'm teaching people to teach. Every technical correction, every technical thing you teach your students Mm -hmm. should be a solution to a problem that the student has experienced, right? So, Mm They're not looking at it, okay, I move my sword like this and this because that's what the form is they're like, okay my opponent's sword is coming at my head and I do this and this and that way I parry and strike and so they're not learning it as a uh, as a choreography they're learning it as a solution to an experienced problem mm-hmm. and that way they're not there's it's absolutely clear what the input is and the process just makes sense yeah and
1: then and then that this leads us to also uh, to an interesting uh understanding which is that okay for example now here we're having an abstract discussion and within this abstract discussion we can refer ourselves to strikes to parries to footwork and this means having technique Mm -hmm. systematized into into three groups but in terms of the performer for the performer there are there is no footwork for the performer there are only two technical uh the only two technical um, subgroups there are only strikes and there is only and there are only parries and an- another analogy if we meet again in the street and i decide to approach you in order to shake your hand i perform the approach without focusing on the steps i don't even think about steps right what i th- i think about the task i want to accomplish which is to give you a handshake and because of, prior, pri- because of prior experiences, I already know the distance I want to be at from you in order to give you a handshake. I don't want to be so close that like we're like bumping chests, and I don't want to be so far away that I have to lean forward. And so I'm aware of the distance I want to be at in order to have my yeah. arm almost fully extended um, and standing in an upright posture. Being... Being able to see with my mind's eye the end position I want to be at, I compare that with my initial position and I move. I move forward, or even I move to the side, or I or even move back. Imagine that I'm already we're already like crossing paths, and I go like, "Oh, dude, like there's a the guy," and, and I even need to step back in order to distance myself from you to put myself at the, the the desired handshake distance. And so, in terms of the performer, for the performer, the performer doesn't have to think simultaneously in parallel about strikes and footwork or about parries and footwork. Both parries sure. and strikes have a spatial component to them. The offensive, offensive, the, the distance you want to be at when you finish the strike, the strike, or the defensive, uh, or the defensive combat distance you want to be at when you perform, when you finish the parry. And by be, having having become aware and knowledgeable uh, pertaining that offend because pertaining those defensive and offensive skills, then you constantly see those defensive and offensive distances in your mind's eye and you constantly compare yourself, your present situation with that offensive or or defensive position you want to finish at. And so you only think striking and you think pairing and both uh, both the offensive, offensive, the the spatial distance component of striking and the spatial component of distance gets you to move naturally. This isn't to say... Now, just a, another thing. This isn't to say that biomechanics are not important. Bi- biomechanics are important and they deal with maximizing the transference of energy between your body segments so that you are able to uh, move uh, as fast as possible. Smoothly, yeah. Smoothly and developing the maximum Angular speed yeah. and the maximum transference of angular speed speed between body segments, but the thing is that uh, that's not the foundation. So that's some, uh, and so the foundation needs to be being able to perform. And so going back to the baseball player or the tennis player, it's useless to get him to focus on his body to develop a great motor pattern, movement pattern that would generate maximum kinetic energy but he's he is he and so he's able to generate great kinetic energy but he's not able to make contact with the ball okay so first he's, he needs to be able <laughs> yeah. to make contact with the ball for his generation of kinetic energy to to have the potential to matter to matter and so the foundation Needs to be, or the the thing I advise people to focus on is to focus on making their foundation in terms of motor skill development, being able to think, about, I think, of skill and be able to to perform skill from a problem solving perspective, you know, from a from a contextual perspective. Uh, then, if they do that, then they can and should, at a later stage. Add a slight sprinkle of biomechanical enhancement, but then but then it's just a slight detour that they do, that they perform, that they undergo. And as soon as they are able to accomplish their biomechanical goals and they are able, they were able to um fine-tune their movement pattern in terms of biomechanics, they need to as as soon as possible let go of that intention to control their body then they need to go back to just focusing on their opponent their combat context and and let the combat context uh lure your their body to just move in a in a contextual manner
0: yeah I mean, one thing it's funny you mentioned the handshake example i actually get my students to do that when i'm introducing yes. them to measure i just yes. get a group of students who maybe no, maybe don't, just to go around shaking hands with each other. And then I point out, you are perfectly capable of getting to the right measure at the right time without fumbling, without tripping, without, you know, any difficulty at all. And, and then we can adapt it. Maybe, okay, now you want to shake hands, but you also put your other hand on your, on the person's forearm. So you get to a slightly different measure, or maybe you've decided that you don't really trust them. And so you're going to keep your distance and shake hands at arm's length go ahead and do that. And they all do it absolutely fine. And then you stick a sword in their hand and they get distracted by the sword and they forget that they do actually know how to judge distance and they get too close or too far away or whatever. And so they have to kind of get used to the natural their natural ability to judge measure. They have to kind of get used to doing that with something distracting in their hand like a sword. Can I give you some input on that?
1: Yeah, please. Uh, yeah. The, so the thing is that like w- your strategy is completely valid. W- what you are uh, in a very in- smart, intelligent way uh, pursuing is, is positive transference. You are right. looking to use one skill in which they are all, already skilled in, in order, for the, f- uh, in order to transfer it to a new but very similar uh, skill. Uh, and now, and so your overall strategy is one hundred percent correct. I would simply fine tune it in the following uh, in the following manner. The thing is that uh, when it is said that uh, when kids go through puberty and their body uh, suddenly goes through that uh, well known gro- growth spur spur. Um, yep. They, beca- they very easily became clum- clumsy because obviously, like you, they go to bed one day, their upper limb is a certain length. Like then the next day, their upper limb has grown, ha- grew like five centimeters during the during the night. Obviously, I'm exaggerating, but like over a week or whatever, and suddenly they're reaching for the glass and they knock down the glass because basically they mismanage their, their 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 distance because they mm-hmm. haven't because their body but their body grew. And they haven't adjusted their notion of distance in the same manner, and so your students are going through the same what, the same thing. Yeah. Uh, you, you get them to perform the handshake. They do it successfully because I'm guessing most of your students they are all grown grownups, and so they are all pretty well familiarized with the length with the with the size of their body segments. But yeah. then suddenly you get them to under, to undergo puberty again just without all the inconveniences of puberty. Suddenly, you get them, yeah. you get their upper, limb, upper limbs to, to, suddenly, to suddenly, literally suddenly grow like a, full a, feet meet, yeah. a meter or yeah. a meter and a half or whatever. And it's challenging. And so in that situation, what I personally prefer to do is, for example, you, get, you, you, you place the, the weapons, the swords in their hands. And for example, you um mark you use a tape a colored tape to mark the tip of the weapon either the full tip or for example like a palm from the tip you place a, a, mm-hmm. a color a, a color a colored, a colored uh, tape and then you give them the task to simply uh, extend their arm forwards in order to touch a target. For example, you get the, the either to touch yeah. the, the, the the training partner's shoulder, or if the training partner uh, has access to a to a hitting pad, uh, they can be you, uh, holding a hitting pad, and they simply have the task of touching the pad um, uh, with the arms extended or fu- or almost fully extended, and the person serving as target will move around and has the freedom to distance themselves, uh,
0: approach... We have a a game like this... We have a game like this called the buckler game, Mm
1: -hmm. where
0: one person holds a buckler behind their back, and the other person with whatever weapon, um, when the person holding the buckler exposes the buckler, they have to hit it with their rapier or their longsword or whatever else. Mm -hmm. And the person with the buckler is moving backwards and forwards and to the side or whatever, and just the person who has the weapon is sort of trying to keep themselves in a position where when the buckler comes out, they're going to be able to hit it. Mm-hmm. And the person with the buckler, their job is to make that sufficiently difficult that it's interestingly challenging. So the optimal rate of failure is occurring. So maybe the person with the sword gets the strike to work four times out of five, something like that. Yeah. So yeah, we have something similar to that already
1: yeah because for example you, you Brits you Brits have the or i would, i could i could say us Brits because i was also born in england and i do have a british citizenship uh I and didn't so know. I could, oh yeah so i can actually say us Brits although I only, I only lived there for for the first year of my life um have the the the, the strong uh, well-known tradition of dart throwing uh, at pubs right yeah. and so yeah Everyone learns or develops the skill to throw darts without actually being taught, without actually having a formal, going through a formal teaching process. And how do people do that? By simply undergoing, by simply experiencing um, a practice that affords them access to intrinsic feedback. You throw the dart and at the end you get the visual feedback the intrinsic feedback the straight feedback like. f- straight away so that the intrinsic f- in case people some people some listeners might not might, might not know intrinsic feedback is that which is immediately made available for you to you as a result of 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 your skill of, of your performance in this case you throw the dart and you immediately see if it was a little bit off to the left or right or up or down or whatever and based on that you look to adjust your movement on the next go around and so uh and and now coming slightly full circle you want your trainees to improve distance management you're going to do it through solo drills uh, by getting them to train to hit the the invisible opponent which who which doesn't give them access to any intrinsic feedback in terms of distance management. No, it doesn't make any sense. And so you simply give them the task of wanting to hit, strike, touch a specific physical target at a specific distance. You you tell them that they want to maximize reach. You tell them that they don't want to strike to hit the, the target with the lead tip while holding the weapon very close to them. So you give them some references uh, but within those references of looking to maximize reach uh, in a way that they, that they touch, hit, strike the target with the lead tip, then you get them to actually actually practice that with um, a, f- a physical target that gives them access to uh, so, intrinsic feedback. And even before the, the f- intrinsic feedback gets them to practice by thinking, not in terms of feet, but, but by thinking in terms of distance.
0: Right. Like, like when I'm teaching people point control with a rapier, right, it's very easy to start them at lunging distance, but that's actually quite difficult. Um, so what I do is I start them with on a wall target so they don't have to worry about hitting their partner or whatever, um, get their left shoulder actually on the target, right, and then they're trying to get the rapier to kind of – it's difficult to hit the target when you're that close to it with a rapier because it's so long. And mm-hmm. so then they maybe – turn around a little bit and they're still very close and they're sort of jabbing it with like a wrist action and then they take a step back and they can hit it just by extending the arm and then they take a step back and they can hit it with a lunge and then they take a step back and they can hit it with a pass and it it's not about this kind of mechanistic repetition of this specific action it's about wherever you happen to be hit the fucking target mm-hmm Right, because in a sword fight, you don't get to set everything up and have your partner stand still, and then you just stab them. You have to, you have to be able to manipulate things so that you can always strike whichever leg is forward, which wherever your weight is, there you should always be in a position where you can strike. And so I get them to to, to train like that because um, it takes it away from this then trying to remember a specific technique. And it gives them just this objective of just hit the target. Yeah, perception. And then we can can work on, yeah, but then we can work on, oh, okay, if we we improve your lunge a little bit, you'll be able to hit the target from further away with less effort, so why don't we work on that? And then then we'll improve their lunge and, and that will get a bit better and then we'll throw that back into the mix. Yeah,
1: perception leads to action. Uh, oh, and lures right. people into action and, and molds uh, people's actions, and then so, and then ultimately, but then ultimately, mm-hmm. this can obviously get us to engage in more ph- philosophical discussions. The thing is that this this is a this uh, in my understanding. My belief is that this um, helps us diagnose an issue with which runs way deeper, which is that we're increasingly living in in, in a society. Where people tend to be, or in which society tends to be, more and more like control freak, and and and, and so, yeah. uh, and this to say what? This to say that, uh, people like to, but by, by focusing on that, on on the idea that you need to see something to believe it, you go like, oh no, no, like I only I I only believe in what I see, and I. Uh, and so I focus on just what can be grasped uh, through my five senses. And so then it's like, OK, so from, from an outside perspective, uh, the instructor, the person he, who, who is observing uh, the fighter, the martial arts, martial artist performing, the observer only has access to the action. You only see body segments moving in space. And so and then with this uh, control freak mentality and, and looking to be like 100% objective, what you see is body segments moving in space. Then you look to teach body segments moving in space. Oh, move your arm like this, your shoulder like this, your knee like that, your foot like that. But the thing is that uh, the performer is not a robot. The performer is, in this case, it's, it's, he's more like an actor. Because... And, uh, trying, uh, no, ma- trying to make a long story short for example if I, I, if I see if, if we're physically in the same room if we're together but in scenario A uh, you come to Portugal we haven't seen each other since 2006 the context is that, that. What, what will I do? I will give you a handshake I will give you a hug I will go hey guy long time no see but in scenario B, I've just found out that I don't know. You slept with my wife.
0: Um, <laughs> I didn't. I promise I didn't. My wife would kill me. You wouldn't get a chance to kill me. My wife would have already killed me. <laughs> I'm, di- I'm divorced. I'm divorced. So, so the, okay. this is one hundred percent hypothetical. <laughs> okay. Um,
1: you, I would punch. I, I, I could. I, I might eventually punch you. But this to say what? This to sure. say that. From a physical standpoint, it's always the same physical stimulus. It's Guy Windsor showing up in front of me, but the same yeah. physical, the same physical stimulus would, in one scenario, uh, get me to react to have to adopt one specific behavior, and in scenario yeah. B, adopt a, a different behavior. And so, fighters are not mere performers; they are actors. They are individuals mm-hmm. who are in, who are experiencing a specific context. In this case, they are fighting, and in a in, and they want to be successful in fighting. And being successful in fighting brings about the need to uh, be successful in two very specific tasks. They need to protect themselves while also being able to strike their their opponent. And sure. Um, by focusing on these tasks, they will look to use their movement vocabula- vocabulary in order to perform problem-solving solutions within that context. And so and that's how this gets us back to the, to the initial situation. Instead of teaching outputs, you are able to understand outputs from the perspective of them being a consequence of the input. Um, and if you do that, you end up teaching in a perception-action perception, le- a perception action per- uh, um, methodology, using a perception-action methodology, or eco- ecological teaching perspective, or teaching games for understanding perspective. There are a bunch of names to de- designate this teaching mes- methodology. But basically, it entails looking, um, looking to reach beyond what you see with your eyes, Looking to to reach beyond, uh, um, beyond the movements that you see being performed by by the performers, by the fighters, <laughs> being able to reach beyond that in order to figure out uh, what that, what is what which motivations are driving them uh, to this, to showcase those movement patterns and ultimately also what type of... And then the cherry on top of the cake, being able to understand what type of movement vocabulary they also already had in order to make to either make use of the movement vocabulary they already have, like you are doing with the handshake situation. You realize that they already have within their movement vocabulary the ability and the knowledge of the handshake situation, and and thus you're looking to use that uh, to to stimulate positive transference to and to maximize, optimize, facilitate the development of combat skill management, combat distance management. And ultimately, then if you realize that, okay, there is a specific movement vocabulary that is a prerequisite to learning, to developing a specific skill, and they are missing that movement vocabulary. Okay, then I need to start by getting to experience certain things, so as to so that they first start by developing that movement vocabulary, um, uh, and then later on, I can then later on build on that and actually teach them the actual skill.
0: Okay, so I th- I think we agree pretty much across the board on on how teaching works and this. And I think it'd be quite interesting to actually get in a room together and, and with some students and teach them skill sets and see. I'd, I'd actually quite like to watch how you teach basic yoga to power strikes mm-hmm. um, to complete beginners because that would, it was sort of, I think it would give me some good ideas as to how I can improve my own pedagogical methods. But <clears throat> looking at the historical martial up. arts scene. Yeah, yeah we should. Um, Looking at the historical martial art scene from your perspective, because Jogger de Power is not historical martial art in the sense that it's not being recreated from books. Now, one of the problems we have, of course, is that the book can tell us things like what we should do when someone tries to stab us in the face in a certain way. And it can give us like guard positions and we can um, interpolate the movement that goes from one position to another as illustrated. Okay. So it's relatively straightforward to extract choreography Mm -hmm. from historical martial arts texts. It's much, much harder to extract actual combat skills. So from your perspective, how can historical martial arts practitioners improve their training?
1: Well... um two things come to mind one uh, as i stated earlier so that uh, f- a german friend of mine student of mine uh, patrick scheller uh, he has been for self for 12 years now uh, studying and training both um, the german system uh, and jorge doupaw and I, I i believe he's also uh, Look to study a little bit of Fiori's system as well, so he might he might actually also be a, a nice source for you to eventually interview, uh, because you know he he's been dealing and looking into the two facets of the coin, and so and this to say what this to say that okay Jogo do Pau is a part of what I understand to be historical martial arts, but it's not, but like you rightfully said it's not a, a historical martial art. European martial art that has been recreated from books it's a historical um, european martial fencing art that has been preserved through direct teaching and in that and that and not only through direct teaching but a direct teaching which focuses highly on free play sparring and as a result co- the, the the link between combat co- context and skill has been preserved mo- much more easily and much more faithfully and so that my first my first thought is that uh, those looking to interpret interpret uh, ancient manuals old manuals in order to uh, resurrect these skills i think they could benefit from uh, looking at jogdopaul from studying jogdopaul in order to develop a foundation a foundation from which to look at uh, these manuals. This is the first idea that c- comes to mind. The second idea that comes to mind is that um, f- basically, uh, histor- sword fencers, historical European sword fencers, uh, seem to face the same issues that I see also in Jogo pau. And the thing is that for me, uh, if we look, if we look to uh, to characterize, to define sparring fencing um, as an equation, for me it's like you've got two parcels. You've got for one, you want to hit your opponent, so you've got the aggressiveness of wanting to hit your, your opponent. But then it's plus being respectful of the opponent's weapon and this equals being aggressive in a mindful manner and every time that you look to go to test drive your skill but then you try to do it safely and thus you introduce padded weapons or gloves helmets or all of the above then you end up minimizing or eventually even eliminating eliminating one of the parcels which is that of being respectful being fearful of the opponent's weapon and so from two parcels that were leading to being aggressive in a in a careful in a cautious manner you eliminate the fear factor and so you just end up being all out aggressive in terms, uh, from an operational standpoint, what does this translate into? This translates very simply into the mismanagement of combat distance. Because the thing is that if you throw me a stri- if you if you throw me a strike, and in scenario A, if I parry on the same spot, in scenario B, I parry while distancing myself to be to have a greater to have a greater chance of not getting hit by your strike. Between these two scenarios, scenario A, me pairing on the same spots, scenario B, pairing while distancing myself, in which scenario will I be able to be faster with the counter-attack? In scenario B, A, because it's the scenario in which I kept myself already within striking distance. And so you strike at me, I parry without stepping back. And so you strike and and so you get us both into striking reach. From, at that distance, I only need to parry and immediately counter attack. That's very, it's very easy to be fast in doing that. While if I step back, it, mean, it means that while you sought to break down combat distance, to shorten combat distance, I countered by keeping it a little bit wider than what you wanted. But then that wider defensive distance is probably, for the mo- in most cases, also too wide for me to be able to land the counterattack from. And so, from that exiting action, I need to be able to co- swift swiftly revert to a reapproaching action. And so that the ability to swiftly go from distancing action to reapproaching action will delay my counterattack. And so the thing is that. Uh, if we're sparring with wooden or steel weapons and without any body armor, although I'm not a fan, a fan of the time that I lose with exiting and needing to reapproach, I will still resort that because I will approach our sparring as a trapeze artist who doesn't have a safety net, okay, right.
0: Yeah, I've done some trapeze with a safety net, and yes, it's, yeah, you would not want to do it without the safety net.
1: Yeah, but (laughs) if suddenly I have padded weapons and or Mm. gloves, helmets, and you name it, then I stop being fearful of of your weapon. And this happens just like uh, sci- psychoanalysts say that this is like, uh, this happens in the other, underground, underwater part of the iceberg. This is all subconscious, yeah. unconscious. Uh, um, I stop being fearful of your weapon. I intuitively realize that I, I, I am able to be faster with the counterattack by staying on the same spot. And as a result, I start playing Russian roulette. You feed me a strike, and I, I parry on the same spot, and I and if, I, if I, and on top of, and then the cherry, the cherry on top of the cake is that if I know that I'm competing in a in a, within an organ within a, a within a competition, in which we fight, for example, to the best of ten exchanges, uh, I go like yeah. okay, like I'm really good at at sp- at parrying, I'm gonna parry ten times on the same spot, and I'm gonna bet on me on myself to parry successfully six out of the ten so that in a worst case scenario i i win six four but the thing is that some (laughs) i eventually win the tournament by always winning six four seven three or whatever but in some cases i started losing one zero or two zero and the thing is that in a martial sense i wouldn't have won but yeah even even deeper than that in a martial situation, and I'm, now I'm not going to name names, but I have sparred and I have free played with exceptional team of fighters or uh, trainees who are also exceptional human beings, but by simply removing the safety net, by simply removing the padded weapons or the gloves or the helmet, they immediately started stepping back. And as they started stepping back, that increased the time I had available to parry to defend myself from their counterattack. As I also stepped back, they were also afforded that increased time to parry my counterattacks, and that organically led to long exchanges. And so, yeah. which, and so, and so, answering your question, summarizing everything. Uh, two things, two thoughts that come to mind for him trainees to improve their training. One is for them to uh, think carefully about the possibility of studying a bit of Jogo in order to develop a foundation from which to look at uh, manuals from a different perspective. And number mm-hmm. two for them to uh, balance the scales a little bit better in terms of sparring, free playing with body armor and without body armor, because the uh, because so that one day they are able to eventually start sparring and free playing with body armor, but with the se- with the martial the same martial mindset that in uh, that they have when they do it without body armor yeah. which in terms of, in terms of actual fighting entails being more mindful of their defensive distance
0: do you know, um one of the things that my senior students do quite a lot is slow free play with sharp swords and no protection mm-hmm. and because obviously when you're using sharps, you have to slow everything down, you have to be super careful, you don't actually hit your partner. There's all sorts of bullshit in that scenario, but it gives them a much better sense of how they would actually act if the swords were sharp. Oh. Like, you know, people are, are very happy to enter in with a pummel strike or whatever and get their opponent's sword two inches away from their face mm-hmm. if they're wearing a fencing mask and there's a rubber point on the end. When or it's sure. sharp, and they don't have anything on their face. They get that thing about two feet away from their face because they're frightened of it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and Vinciani said the same thing in his in his 1575 book, Los Gerimos. He, he basically disdains training with blunt swords because it encourages you to not parry properly. So yeah, I mean, what, what you're, you're, in my case, you're preaching to the choir, but I'm hoping some of the listeners will maybe take that on board and go, actually, you know what? Maybe don't... Okay, I am not saying everyone should train with sharps I'm not saying that it should be done under professional supervision but I think um, putting together training scenarios in which you remain frightened of the weapon is is good for everyone Mm -hmm. yeah Um, for sure okay so I have a couple of questions that I ask all of my guests and the first of them is what is the best idea you haven't acted on yet
1: I would say that it's an an old idea that I have of putting together a do-it-yourself training regimen, a do-it-yourself tutorial for people to be able to easily teach themselves, teach their family members with them and and their friends. Um,
0: Okay. What would that that look like? like? We're we talking about like a video course or a book or what is it?
1: Uh, I might eventually start. It it would depend on the on the tools I have access. Uh, I end up having access to, because obviously that uh, yeah video course anything with actual video video footage would be preferable. But but uh, if needs be, and if I end up putting to putting it this. Putting this together through a, a book, uh, yeah, I'm pretty confident that it would still translate into very good results because, just like we're saying, a like, lot, just like we've been arguing, discussing, talking about, uh, it's a type of practice in which you get the intrinsic fi- feedback from the practice itself, uh, like dart throwing uh, at the at our at the British pubs mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And so, since uh, this do it yourself. Uh, do-it-yourself teaching approach that I would like to put together uh, is centered around uh, simply people, people understanding uh, or managing their, their, their practice centered around tasks uh, centered around a task mentality and a task mentality in which the task itself the, the experience of the task itself supplies trainees with intrinsic feedback Uh, yeah, uh, a book would get people to still um, achieve great results, yeah.
0: Okay, Um, I have some experience of putting together training manuals of various kinds, and one thing that I've started doing last four or five years or so is I combine the printed book, because that's better for, like, organizing information, with video clips, and you can put QR codes to the video to the link for the wherever you've hosted your video clip so you can actually do a book with the video um, so that you don't have to have one or the other you can have both
1: yeah uh, I, I, I really appreciate the input uh, very recently, I put together a, a Patreon account on top of my older YouTube account. And I've actually also been playing around mentally with um, with that possibility. Yeah, uh, uh, I've been looking to find okay. a way to bring that into effect. Yeah, but I really, really appreciate your input. Yes.
0: Okay, so yeah, well, if you, if you want any help, like actually getting this from haven't acted on to have acted on, just, you know, let me know. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm happy to uh, sort of advise on, you know, publishing strategies and that sort of thing. If that's, that's, wonderful.
1: that's wonderful. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Yeah.
0: Um, okay. So my last question is <clears throat> somebody gives you a million dollars to spend improving historical martial arts, which we can expand to include yoga de power. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, worldwide. How would, how would you spend the money?
1: Uh I would say that I would spend the money um, by enhancing by looking to enhance uh, the input of sports sciences on on and of the whole academic scene. Uh, in Hema, in order to strengthen Hema, in all sorts of aspects, and so I would look to put together scholarships for people to um, to co- to put together for people to put together like master's theses and doctoral theses on the subjects. I would look to try to stimulate partnerships between uh, different academic institutions. Um, and i would look to try to sponsor eventually even like uh, even master's degrees on just like uh, sports teaching and sports coaching specifically applied to combat sports and eventually to to historical martial arts yeah I i would look to to pursue uh all these avenues, but all of them geared towards uh, strengthening him from uh, from uh, a methodol- in terms of methodology and approach to knowledge and even knowledge itself uh, by by connecting it more and more and more strongly with the academic world yeah.
0: Okay, so so specifically, for instance, a historical martial arts instructor would be able to go and get a master's degree or some kind of training using modern sports physiology, sports psychology, um, sports sort of um, latest developments in how sports are coached. Is that is that yeah. what you're looking at?
1: Yeah. Um, okay. That obviously, like my 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 personal thing. So what I've studied, what has been, I have studied um, teaching and basically sports training, and so that's my specific area of knowledge. But I'm pretty sure that other people, some from the more uh, uh, in terms of anthropology and sociology, history, I'm pretty sure that all those other departments would also be interesting to pursue and to strengthen from an academic standpoint. But, uh, uh, but instead of pursuing j- only those avenues, since at the end of the day we're talking about uh, trainees undergoing a physical practice geared towards the development of a specific uh, motor skill. Um, yeah, my my main my personal main focus would be that one, uh, because the thing is that like um, you. You have, uh, as a a coach, as a trainer, you have students standing in front of you. You're teaching them. You're looking to teach them a given skill. But then, like, they are all then working on that new skill. But they all um, then showcase different difficulties in in order to... uh, develop that new skill set that you're looking to uh, to, get, to get them to develop. Then one fundamental skill that instructors uh, benefit from is that of being able to um, interpret uh, the error, the mistakes, so that they're able to understand the cause. For example, uh, yeah, are my instructors uh, dealing with uh, or are my my instructors my are my trainees struggling um, with this new skill because they lack like a physical trait like range of motion or strength or are they lacking uh, perceptual skills or are they lacking um, uh, some other element and so being able because it's very easy and it's what mouse instructors do, it's very easy to simply pinpoint the error. Oh, like, like you mismanaged distance. Uh, you did it wrong again, mm-hmm. and you did it wrong again. But, one, but like for the most part, trainees they, by themselves, they are even able to access that intrinsic feedback, and they're able to understand and realize that they did it, uh, that they did it incorrectly but the thing but then uh that uh but even if for some reason they weren't paying attention and they didn't realize they would they, they didn't think correctly just pointing it out doesn't solve the issue for, doesn't help <laughs> it doesn't at all. and so yeah. and being able to um research movement the performance of movement and being able to uh become proficient in the interpretation of the error and at the first stage, and then a the second stage, being becoming skilled in um, developing um, corrective, effective corrective strategies, uh, tailor-suited uh, to each trainee according to what is causing, uh, what, what is challenging them the most. That is a pedagogical tool that can and should be researched can and should be taught to, to trainers, to coaches, and that ought and should be learned by coaches for the benefit of their students and also for their own benefit because, uh, I have a, because coaches, trainers, they themselves uh, enjoy their, the process of teaching, coaching much more when they see positive results.
0: Right. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's it's in the coach's best interest to be better at coaching. That's for sure. Yeah. Fascinating. So, um, yeah. I think if I had the money, I'd give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the question, the question is, like, really, how how to best target that? Because simply there being, I don't know, at the University of Lisbon, there being a one year master's degree thing for. Um, historical fencing coaches to come and get you know, this sort of training that that will help people who can fly to Lisbon and live in Lisbon for a year while they do this um, but the problem with all, all of the academic stuff mm-hmm. as, soon, as soon as it's within a university it becomes much more difficult for the general public to access much more expensive and it tends to be a lot more location dependent so do you think it would be possible to set up a um, some sort of online-based system for, sure, for teaching this easy. stuff? For sure. Okay. Very, very, very easily. So how do you examine a- it? I mean, I, I, I have online courses for all sorts of things, including how to teach. So getting the information out there through the internet, that's easy. But how do you? How would you examine people so they can actually get a qualification that way? How do you examine
1: things? Um, personally, I would examine things, uh, train, uh, so students, really from a practical standpoint in terms of in, instead of instead of merely presenting them with information for them to memorize and then spill out uh, mm-hmm. in the exam i would do the opposite i would i would present them with practical tasks uh that uh, in which they would need to apply the the contents the concepts covered during sure. class
0: so i mean, i i, I examine students who are training to be teachers and stuff and in person, it's easy, right? You just watch them teach a class or watch them teach an individual lesson or whatever, and it's the examination process is straightforward. But how do you test for that kind of skill over the internet? Any thoughts on that? This, this is actually a problem that I am trying to solve yeah. for my own purposes, yeah, yeah, yeah. so I'll be very curious if you have any, any suggestions.
1: You can, you can put together uh, videos. Um, Mm -hmm. for them to, uh, analyze, uh, and write a report on in terms of the mistakes, the mistakes that they identify, what they believe the causing effects are and which type of, um, corrective strategies they would pursue for starters. So you'd
0: send them a video of a student who was having trouble with something. And then ask them what the how they would deal with it that's not a bad yeah. idea yeah.
1: okay that, uh, contact, immediate like uh, real life um, uh, movement analysis for mm. them to have to solve the issue, just like you when you're studying mathemat- studying when you're studying mathematics Okay, like you can study a few concepts from a theoretical standpoint, but uh, but then ultimately you need to buy an exercise book and you need to exercise it exercise it and be able to develop uh, your skill to to merge all the ideas together in order, uh, in solving in solving the exercises and this is the same thing instead of opening the books and, l- and learning th- theoretically in an abstract manner uh, about like. Teaching principle number one. Teaching principle number two. Like instead of being things being generic, now like okay, you 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 present and you teach and you present trainees um, in this case students with those general principles, but then and but then you apply it into practice and Mm -hmm. and the beauty of being able to have a course specifically uh, designed for one specific sport. Is that it allows you to actually uh, make the transition from theory to practice to that point to the point of actually recording real-life trainees with the, uh, who are showcasing different type of uh, difficulties in uh, in learning tasks, uh, so that the so that the students get to actually practice their teaching skills the teaching skills that real-life real-world teaching. Uh, requires of them which is uh, from a pedagog in terms of motor skill development it's uh, which, which is based around uh, movement analysis and being able to detect the errors interpret interpret the causing effects of the errors and coming up with effective uh, creative um, creating sol- creative uh, corrective uh,
0: strategies yeah that is very interesting Okay, I'm going to have to go away and think about that because that. one of the problems that I am personally trying to solve we'll is be, we'll, some students... We'll
1: schedule, we'll schedule the next <laughs> forecast for the next for 2048.
0: <laughs> I think faster than that. Um,
1: hopefully, yeah.
0: Hopefully, Yeah, no, um, no, I'm just thinking about it because it's it's... One of the problems that we have as a community in the historical martial arts world is lack of useful teacher training and lack of certification for such things so that people can take a piece of paper that actually means something to an insurance company and say, look, I'm a competent instructor, give me a decent rate on insurance. Okay. So, and it's the the teaching isn't the problem, it's the certification that's the problem. And now I have some stuff to think about. So thank you very much. I'm going to go away and think about it. I'm not, yeah, it's, it's itching away at the back of my head. <laughs> Brilliant. That well, help. thank you very much for joining me today, Luis. It's been great to meet you again. Thank you,
1: Guy. Thanks for having me. It was a, a true pl- pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Luis. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Person's Care Package. This includes 4 ebooks and access to several of my online courses. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Elena Yanniger, Dr. Elena Yanniger, no less, who is a historian and a TV presenter and she's been doing lots of very interesting things since the last time she was on the show a couple of years ago. So you don't want to miss that. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really helps. Thanks for listening. And I will see you next week.